Acts 21. This is kind of the recording of Paul ending his third missionary journey. So you can kind of see from that map, it's not the best map in the world. If I had the little pointer today, I would show you, but I can't. But um, that's okay. Can you see where it says Ephesus, kind of right in the middle? Yeah? Can you see that, Ephesus? No? Yes. Yes? Okay, good. Below that's Miletus, yeah? That's where we were last week, was Paul had kind of met his team in Miletus and called for the elders from the church in Ephesus to meet him there. And so what we talked about last week took place in Ephesus. So now he's going to go from Miletus, we're going to see, to, from, to Kos, Rhodes, Patera, uh, and then over on the left side of Cyprus, he's going to go end up in Tyre of Syria, and then eventually on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, can you guys follow that now, the little arrows? Yes? Okay, so this is what's taking place today, in, in the text that we're in today. Paul's journeying back towards Jerusalem. And Luke gives us a lot of information that is really kind of just like travel information. And you can kind of think, well, what's the point? Why do we need to know this stuff? Well, in fact, sometimes when we read these things, I don't know if, if you guys ever experienced this, but sometimes I, I, I think, okay, why would the Holy Spirit want us to know this stuff? Why is this stuff important to us? Uh, what, is the, what is the fact that he's going back to Jerusalem have to do with our walk with Jesus? What, how, what's it got to do with us? But I think we're going to learn some really good practical lessons as we look at Paul's experiences on his way back to Jerusalem. I think we're going to learn some good practical lessons on things like direction. How do we get direction from God? Seriously. I don't mean like directions. I don't know where I'm driving. I mean like how do we know what God wants us to do with our life? Or things like um, uh, prophecy. There's a lot of really cool stuff in this section about prophecy, specifically how New Testament prophecy might be different than Old Testament prophecy. It's really important stuff if you believe God still wants us to prophesy, and we do. So it's important to know the difference between those things. Uh, and even really just obedience, because Paul is one of the great examples of someone who's just wanting to obey God, wanting to just obey Jesus and the call he has in his life. So don't we pray, and then we'll get into it. We're supposed to go all the way through verse 36, so we're going to kind of be moving at breakneck speed. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we do pray again, and thank you that you desire to... Um, Speak to us, Lord. You desire that your words be used in a way that, that we know what it means to walk with you and to trust you. And I pray, Lord, that as we get into this, that that's exactly what would happen, is that we would we'd walk closer to you and trust you more um, because of the things that we learn today. We pray you do this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So verse 21, or verse 1, sorry, of chapter 21. It says, now it came to pass that when we, now notice this is Luke saying we, so Luke's with Paul in this journey, that we, when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. So Luke tells us that they, they leave and they ended up uh, uh, doing this quick journey, kind of just traveling to this place, Patera. Doesn't tell us anything about Rhodes, doesn't tell us anything about Kos, doesn't even tell us anything about Pateras until they landed there. But the thing to notice is when it says that when we had departed from them. This is one of these times when your English Bible doesn't do you as much justice as if you could get into, or when you kind of look into what the Greek says. Because remember, this is them leaving Miletus. And when he says they departed, the word for departed there, it's a very strong word. It means when we tore ourselves away. 
It, it's this, like, this picture, and we saw this last week, right, when they're all kneeling on the beach, and they're praying, and they're weeping over each other, because these guys are really, really close. And so Paul's saying, or Luke's saying, we had to tell ourselves away from this. And, and this is, a, this is a, actually a really good thing, you know, because when it's hard to say goodbye to somebody, that means you really value that relationship, you know. You know, if you, if you see somebody, you're like, okay, later, I won't see you forever, but oh well, you know, you don't really care that much about that person. But when you're like, man, I, you're, you're having to tear yourself away, you know that relationship was really important. And we're going to come back to why that's important in just a minute. Verse 2, it says, And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard, set sail, and when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they told these disciples, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and we prayed. So again, Luke gives us this detail of how they sailed on the left side of, uh, of Cyprus. They end up in Tyre. That's where the ship was going. And, and he kind of just tells us that they get to this place in Tyre, and it says they find disciples there. Now, this is significant in the fact that there's nothing written in the book of Acts that says that any apostles or any people were sent specifically to, to Tyre, to Syria, to plant church or share the gospel. And yet there were believers there. Now, obviously, we assume, therefore, somebody went there and shared the gospel. But what's important about that is that the book of Acts is not like a complete and full uh, diary of everything that happened in the early church. It's, a, it's kind of a picture of a 30-year time period where Luke, as we've said before, is trying to show us how the ministry of the Apostle Peter and the ministry of the Apostle Paul parallel, and they have similar authority. They have this, uh, the same kind of authority. That's important considering that a lot of our doctrine, what we understand about the gospel, comes from what Paul explained to churches that he planted in his letters, okay? Now, also what's interesting here is they find these disciples, and it says specifically that these disciples, through the Spirit, Luke writes that the Holy Spirit's speaking through these guys, and he's telling Paul, or they're saying to Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to talk about this more when we get to verse 14, but it's, it's, it's not insignificant in the fact that, that God's speaking through these people, these disciples they just found speaking prophetically through these people as Paul's on his journey. We'll come back to that again. Come, go to verse 6. It says, when they had taken, uh, And when we had taken our leave from one another, we boarded the ship and returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to, to, to uh, Tomaleus, or Ptolemaeus, sorry, uh, greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Now, Adam rightly brought up this morning uh, about the importance of greeting one another and how that works. In fact, most of Paul's letters, he would end with, make sure you greet one another or these people greet you. You see this in 1 Corinthians. We saw that today in 2 Corinthians. We see this in 1 Thessalonians. All the way down the line, you see where, where, where Paul will say, greet one another in a holy kiss, all the brethren greet you, so on and so forth. And it's important because we, we, when we think about greeting, it's not just like, hello, how are you? It's not just an acquaintance thing. Uh, to greet somebody, specifically in this culture, specifically in the context of the New Testament, to greet somebody is to say to them, you are welcomed here and you are valued here. That's what it means to greet. 
And this is why it's important for us to, to make an effort to do that with one another. This is why for years I fought against us having what we now call ushers. I didn't want to have greeters. Because I knew if we had greeters, people would stop greeting each other. they just let the greeters do it. You know? Now, we're still, I think, okay about greeting one another, but we can improve, can't we? We can be better about getting to know each other and, and doing this. Now, all these things together in this section, I think, uh, show something about what, what Paul had as he's journeying towards Jerusalem. And that is, Paul found some encouragement through the fellowship that he had. He didn't, even though we're, we're going to see later on, and we saw even last week, Paul felt really compelled to get to Jerusalem. He felt like God was leading him to get to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to make it there. He wasn't going to fulfill the goals that God had for his life unless he had encouragement from others in fellowship. He had to, he had to have other believers along the way. So even on this trip, even on this kind of like we're just passing through, he's looking for fellowship. He's looking for a place to, to be with other believers and being encouraged by them and, and even hearing prophetically from God through them. He's wanting to, to, to meet them and say, look, we want to be with you. We value you. Uh, we need your fellowship. We hope you want ours as well. And so Paul's learning this as he, as he presses on. And I think this is important because one of the things that, that uh, we need to make sure that we do, and this is tricky for us, I think, as modern Western Christians, and, and that is, is that we need to make sure that we're not, we're not trying to only discern God's will for us by us, that we're, we know that we need the rest of the family of God to help us as we're moving forward in different directions as we're trying to find out how God's leading us, okay? Now, we get to, uh, we get to verse 8, and it says, On the next day, we, uh, uh, we uh, who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of, of Philip, uh, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And now this man... Uh, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, we've known Philip earlier in the book of Acts, right? Being one of the seven, that means he was one of those seven, what we might refer to as deacons that were chosen in Acts chapter 6. Remember that? And the last time we saw Philip in the book of Acts was in Acts chapter 8, when he goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel and leads a bunch of people to Christ, okay? Well, Philip obviously settles in uh, Caesarea. Some people think that he might have hosted the church uh, there are the believers there in his in his home, but what a great testimony! How would you like to be known as the evangelist? That's pretty awesome, you know. That's Philip. He's the evangelist. Not to mention he's also one of the seven, one of the first kind of deacons chosen. Not to mention his kids really like love Jesus. His daughters all prophesy. That's pretty awesome. That's a good reputation. You know what I'm saying? But it, this is interesting that he that, that Luke tells us that his daughters prophesy because I don't think it just tells us something about um, Philip. It also tells us something about the scenario that's about to take place. Verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 10. Uh, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, uh, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, isn't this interesting? There's four women here, four daughters of Philip, who prophesy. You know, they, they, they obviously use that gift. And God doesn't give them the word uh, for Paul. God gives it to Agabus, who has to come from another area, from Judea. He has to travel, obviously, to communicate this to Paul. It's interesting because what the, it, kind of, it does kind of indicate that, you know, God 
as it says in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, it says that the Spirit moves as He wills. Now, I don't understand why. I don't think there's, there's nothing sexist here going on. They didn't want to use a woman to speak to Paul. Nothing like that. But there is something, I think, significant here. That God, you know, He could have used one of those, those women, who one of those daughters who prophesied, but He didn't. He promoted, or He uh, encouraged Agabus to come, who we saw, I think, back in chapter 13, who had prophesied about uh, a famine in Jerusalem. Uh, you see Agabus coming along, and Agabus gives this prophecy. And it's interesting, too, because Agabus gives this prophecy in a very uh, sort of Old Testament way. You see the Old Testament prophets who would often kind of do something dramatic, kind of do something uh, uh, symbolic, like here's what this means. And so he takes Paul's belt and he ties Paul's, he ties up his hands. Thus says the Lord. It'd been funny if if he takes that belt and ties his hand and Paul says, uh, actually that's Luke's belt. I just borrowed it the other day. Or something. Uh, but he, he, he ties his hands and he says, you know, here's what's going to happen to you. Now it's also important, I want to say at this point, before moving on, going back to Philip's daughters, um, to be really clear, the fact that they're listed that they prophesy is, again, a fulfillment of what Luke wrote about way back in chapter 2. Remember when Peter is preaching on Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls, and he says this is what is, happens, this is what was prophesied in, in the book of Joel, that all your sons and daughters will what? Prophesy. And so this is what we we're saying. This was a, there was a, something literal about that fulfillment that, that, that God was going to speak through a variety of people. But also, the Bible is really clear in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 11 that women do definitely prophesy. The reason I'm bringing this up is I think it's important for us as a church that is strongly complementarian. And what that means is we believe that, that though men and women have equal value in the sight of God, women and women have equal, who are in Christ have equal access to God through Christ, that men and women have different roles. But because men and women have different roles, sometimes people can think that means, oh, we don't think women should ever do anything but just be quiet and love kittens or something. You know? And that's not at all what we think. You know, we think we see biblically that the, the Bible shows that women do prophesy. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. Uh, and so we, we want to make sure that we're being clear about that. Um, now also, though, Agabus brings forth this prophecy. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit. And so here we have, in, in, in just this chapter, two warnings against to, to Paul about, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. It's a bad idea. Well, what happens? Verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we, now this is Luke, okay, we, Luke and his team, both we and those from that place pleaded with Paul not to go to the, to the ups of Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Notice what he says. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it says, So when he, we, uh, he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now, I want you to, don't lose your place in chapter 21, but go to, back to chapter 20 for a second. Now remember what we saw last week, okay? In chapter 20. If you look at verse 20, uh, verse 22. Okay, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Remember, Paul says, And see, now I go, notice what he says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. So Paul is feeling compelled in his innermost being that he needs to go to Jerusalem. And he says, Not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, he says, 
the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But he says, notice verse 24, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, this is interesting, because it begs the question, going back up to, going to, back to chapter 21, and going back up to verse 4. When these believers from Tyre prophesy, or they say to Paul through the Spirit, don't go up to Jerusalem, are they prophesying? Are they speaking the name of God, but they're wrong? Or are they speaking the name of God, and they're right, and Paul is wrong? Or, are they, or did they hear from God, as Paul kind of talked about before, about that, hey, you go to Jerusalem, it's, going to be, it's not going to be good. And basically, all they're saying is confirming what Paul already knows, but they're misinterpreting that. And the same with Agabus. When Agabus says here, Agabus says, here's what you're going to suffer. You're going to, going to be bound. Here's what you're going to experience in Jerusalem. Everyone, all his friends and loved ones, they go, don't go, dude. Why would you do that? And yet Paul goes, no, I have to go. This is what God's called me to do. Now, this is interesting because if in the Old Testament, if a prophet prophesied in the Old Testament, they had to prophesy, they had to say, whatever they said in the name of the Lord had to be 100% accurate. Because if it wasn't 100% accurate, God tells us, Moses told uh, the people of Israel, under the inspiration of God, stone that guy, kill him. He's a false prophet, don't listen to him. That's what the Bible said. So here's what we have to, we wonder, okay, if these guys are, are prophets, they're definitely not prophets in the same way that an Old Testament prophet is. There's got to be a difference between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. Do you see what I'm saying? The other thing here is that you see there's a difference. If, if, the guys, if they were prophesying, and we could say, well, maybe Paul was wrong, and there are some computers who think Paul got this wrong. Well, then Paul's seriously wrong. I mean, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal in the Old Testament, and Paul would have known that. I mean, Paul really knew his, his Bible. He would have known that you don't disobey a prophet unless you want the wrath of God to come upon you. So it would have been a huge deal to have warning after warning after warning, and him just blow it off. No, I think there is a distinction between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. And I think what's going on here is that Paul is getting these prophecies that are preparing him. God's preparing him by prophecy about what he's going to do. And this is one of the things that I've experienced personally. When the, 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 the two times that God has significantly had somebody prophesy over me, it was directional and it was a confirmation of what God had already put on my heart. Here's where we're going to go. And here's what's going to happen. And so that when both times, and by the way, both times when there's prophecies, they happen to be ladies. Just saying. Okay? When that happens, you know, God was already just confirming what he had already shown me. And this is important because I know at times I've been a bit harsh sometimes towards people who feel, who feel like they have a gift of prophecy. Like, oh my God, okay, you're, in, you're kind of one of those nut jobs. You're a weirdo, you know. And to be honest, I am still a little bit suspicious of people who say they have a gift to prophesy. They can prophesy whenever they want kind of a thing. I'm a bit suspicious of that. But the thing is, is that how do we test prophecy? Well, first of all, we, we want to test prophecy, New Testament prophecy, based on does it, con, is it, does it conform to God's Word? In other words, is, is God directing us in a way that would conform to what God wants for us anyway? Or does it uh, contradict what God says clearly that he wants all his people to do? You guys follow me on that? 
But the second thing about prophecy, I think, New Testament prophecy is, it's going to be confirmed by the person that it, it applies to. So the person who, like in this case, Paul, he, he's not saying it's not true. He's just going, look, I know I'm going to suffer. God keeps telling me I'm going to suffer. But that's okay, because I'm committed to do whatever it takes to fulfill the call that God has in my life. I'm not going to be thwarted from doing what God wants me to do. Can you see also how someone can be really prophesying and actually God, the Holy Spirit, is using this person to prophesy, but they can interpret the prophecy wrong and lead somebody astray? Can you see also why maybe it's so totally important that whoever the prophecy is directed to needs to be able to say, amen because of this or no way because of this? Does that make sense? So this is interesting. This is happening with Paul. But let's not, in, in talking about this, let's not lose two things. One, let's not lose Paul's heart for this. Because look at what Luke says. I think it should be on the screen ads if you go to the next slide. Yeah. Luke 9.23. What, what did Jesus say in Luke 9.23? Jesus said, it says, Then Jesus said to them all, speaking to all the people that were listening to him, specifically the disciples, that it applies for all disciples. He says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What's the cross? It's an instrument of death, isn't it? In other words, real discipleship, normal discipleship, means that we say, God, our lives are our own. You've bought us at a price. We belong to you. We want to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, and follow you, even if that means our own death. That's exactly what Paul's doing, isn't it? He's just trying to follow Jesus. This is another way how you find out about direction. A lot of times we think, God, what do you want me to do in this situation or that situation? Well, well, ask yourself a very serious question. If God were to call you to do A, uh, would you would you have to deny yourself to do that? Would it be something that you're willing to do even if you didn't want to do it? What about B? What about C? You know what I'm saying? You're trying to make a decision. Ask yourself, does this fit in with me just simply denying myself, picking up my cross, and following Jesus? Now, this doesn't mean that if you have an option, and one option is really bad, and one option is really good, that the bad option must be God's will, because that's more suffering. That's not what I mean. But there's got to be a willingness to say, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. I, I want to do whatever you want me to do, even if it causes my own suffering. But also, what did Paul say to the Philippian church when he was in jail and thought he was pretty much at the end of his life? He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. <laughs> I'm not afraid to die. It's better for me if I die, Paul said in that same context. wouldn't be so good for you, Philippian church, because you'd probably be discouraged and you, know, you wouldn't be poured into like I've been poured into. But the truth is, it'd be great for me because I'd see Jesus face to face. I'd be, I'd be conformed to his image. I'd, I'd put off this earthly tent. He looked forward to that. So... All this to say is Paul was prepared by prophecy to move forward. And it's interesting uh, what this might tell us. In fact, in verse 14, when they couldn't persuade Paul, they ceased saying, you know what? The will of the Lord be done. We just want to see God's will done. Now, <clears throat> verse 15 says, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, and we brought them uh, and brought with them a certain uh, nation of Cyprus, an early disciple, uh, with whom we were to lodge. So basically, they're going to move now uh, to Caesarea. They're going to make their way from, um, uh, I'm sorry, they're going to make their way up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And so they're, they're going to Jerusalem, and these Gentile believers that are there, these followers of Jesus that aren't Jewish, are going to go with Paul. That's significant. 
Verse 17, it says, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That's the Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. They received them gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when, uh, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord. So you can kind of picture the scene that, that he, they bring with them these Gentiles. They, they go uh, to Jerusalem. The brothers, the brethren in Jerusalem are glad to see them all, treat them all like brothers. And then Paul gives great detail about what God's been doing in their ministry. And as they hear this detail, they're just over the moon. They're like, praise God. God's doing really great stuff. And this is, again, significant that the Jerusalem believers were, they were glorifying God uh, for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Okay, they, they welcome the Gentile believers and they glorify God there. So there's a unity that's there at this point. Okay, look at verse 20, the second part. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Now, so James, as he's talking about, uh, as he hears this great testimony about how God's using Paul among the Gentiles, he says, look, God's also doing something great here. All these Jewish people are seeing Jesus as their Messiah. They're all getting saved. And they're still really zealous for God's law. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with being zealous for God's law. We're going to see in this context that Paul doesn't have a problem with these guys being zealous for God's law. The problem that's uh, it's coming up here that, that, that uh, the elders are bringing up is that there's these false accusations that, that are against Paul that Paul teaches that, um, uh, that, both, uh, the, uh, that any Jews that live among Gentiles should forsake Moses. Or that literally means should apostatize Moses. Like, we have nothing to do with him. He's bad. We want anything to do with Moses. Now, we know this isn't true. I mean, look what, look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 18 and 19. Paul makes this point when he's talking to the Corinthian church. He says, was anyone among you, was anyone, sorry, called, that's called to follow Christ, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not to become circumcised. He says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So Paul was really clear in his ministry, specifically to the Corinthians, that look, if you were a Jew when you got called to follow Jesus, didn't still follow Jesus as a Jew. Were you a non-Jew when you got called to follow Jesus? Well, then follow Jesus as a non-Jew. Just be obedient to God's commands. So it's really clear from Paul's own writings that he's neither saying Moses is bad, nor is he saying that the commandments aren't worth following. Are you guys following me on this? Okay. But yet they're concerned because, well, this is the, the uh, reputation about him. Now, at this point, I want to say, if I was Paul, if this was to happen to me, I'd probably say, well, that's their issue, not mine. That's their problem. I've got things to do. I don't need to be listening to them. You know? I would be cocky about it, probably. But Paul's not like that. Thank God Paul's better than I am. Here's what he says. Verse 23. Or here's what they say to Paul. It says, what then, they say, the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men here who have taken a vow, probably like a Nazarite vow. Uh, take them and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads 
uh, and that all may know that those uh, things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourselves also walk orderly and keep the law. So the Jerusalem elders are saying, okay, look, we want you to dispel these rumors. We want you to to encourage these guys and, and go with these Jewish believers who want to take this Nazarite vow, which would basically be like don't eating raisins and grapes. And they would shave their heads and then start the vow. And then after their hair grew to a certain length for a certain period of time, they would shave their head again and offer that hair uh, as a kind of a symbol that they were consecrated to God for that season. And so these were kinds of traditions and things that were uh, applications of Old Testament Scripture that a lot of Jews did as a sign of worship. These believers in Jesus still wanted to worship God that way. And so the Jerusalem church is saying, Paul, just do this with them. Now Paul, back in Acts 18, we saw Paul had done something like this himself. So it wasn't as if he was against this stuff. And so they're wanting him to do this. Now again, this is the kind of thing that Paul would do. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 to 20. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, in other words, I'm not going to be manipulated by people wanting me to do stuff. He says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under law as under law that I might win those who are under the law. Do you see what's going on here? Paul's motivation is love. Paul was motivated by love. He loved these people. He wanted to see these people know Jesus, walk with Jesus, grow in Jesus. That's what he wanted. Well, this is really, really, also really important because sometimes God is leading us a direction, even preparing us. It's going to be a tough direction, but He's doing that because He wants to. He wants to magnify His love. He wants to demonstrate His love through us and our service to others. And sometimes that means putting us in situations where we've got to do stuff that we suffer for. But if our motivation is we want to win those people, we want to see those people come to know Jesus, then He's going to honor that. Now, it says in verse 25 now that James continues to talk, and he says, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. These are all the things that we saw back in Acts 15, aren't they? And so what's important about this is the Jerusalem uh, believers here are just saying, look, we're not wanting Paul to be, be more Jewish or something. They're not wanting the Gentiles to be more Jewish. They're just wanting to um, show these other people that are stumbled by things that they don't have to be stumbled, that Paul's a good guy, okay? Uh, and so kind of be like if... Um, um, it'd be kind of like if, if say, say God called me to move back to America. He hasn't. I'm not. Don't worry. But say, just say that happened, okay? And so if I went back to America, there's a really good chance I probably wouldn't drink alcohol at all. I, I occasionally have a beer or a glass of wine here, but I probably wouldn't drink alcohol at all there because... At least in our group of churches, they're really sensitive about that, or they have been, at least in the past. So it'd be kind of like if I was visiting there, and people were saying, look, John, we know that it's, it's, it's a freedom issue, we know it's okay that you drink alcohol, but we're just saying these guys think that maybe uh, they've heard rumors that you're like going down to the pub and slamming them down every week. Um, we don't believe that's true, but can you do me a favor? Can you uh, abstain the whole time you're here, and would you be willing to maybe make a commitment to just not drink at all? Not just while you're here, but maybe would you think about praying about even when you go back to the States, not drink, or go back to England, not drinking at all? If I was to say, okay, yeah, for, for you guys, I'll do that. 
Now, I wouldn't say, look, it's wrong for people to drink, so I'm not going to drink anymore, because that would be a false gospel. But I would be willing to say, you know what? Yeah, if you want me to, if you want me to, if it's stumbling these guys, then, then I will say, look, I know I have the freedom, I've had done this, but I'm not going to do this. I, I don't want to make sure that you guys know that I'm willing to give this up, um, because it's not that big of a deal. The truth is, I want to, I want to, want to help you follow Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus. You know, it'd be something like that, but a little bit more intense, as we'll see. So, Paul's motivated by love when he does this. Verse 26, we're almost done. Then Paul took the men, uh, and, and the next day, having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration days of the days of purification. Uh, purification. In other words, how long they're going to let their hair grow and all that kind of stuff. At which time an offering should be made for each of them, each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people. That would be against the Israelites. Uh, against the law and against this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, Luke's going to tell us right here in verse 29, right, that they, these are Jews from Asia. We see that in verse 27. So in other words, the places that Paul had been planting churches, like, like Ephesus and these different places in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, basically, he would get kicked out of these towns by the Jewish guys in the synagogue. And so the last place they expect to see this guy who's preaching this Jesus is in the temple. And so when they see him in the temple and they had earlier seen him walking with uh, Trophimus, as we'll see in a second, who is from Ephesus, they're going, he must have brought Trophimus with him. In fact, that's what it says. For they had previously seen Trophimus, uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And when they supposed that Paul, and they had supposed or assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. So they're going, we knew this would happen. This guy is going to defile the temple. Now you have to understand <coughs> that the <coughs> Jewish temple had kind of different sections, right? There was what's called the court of the Gentiles, where Gentile worshipers could go in and worship. And they could kind of bring whatever offerings they could to the priest. And the priest would you know, check them out and then bring them further on so they could be offered. And then uh, there was also another court where it would be like the court of the Jews. And then there was another inner place. It was only for the priest and then the holy place and the holy of holies. Okay, And there was a sign uh, where between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews that basically said... You know, enter here on risk of death. You know, you cannot come here if you're not a Jew. You're not allowed. And the Romans um, were so sensitive to that that they actually gave, that's the only place the Jews were allowed to bring forth capital punishment, <coughs> was if Gentiles went into that part of the court. They could stone them to death. So they were allowed to actually do that, potentially. So it was a really serious thing. Now, Paul would have known that. He's not stupid. He's not going to like just kind of do something that's going to risk his life for no reason. He would have known that. And it's obvious he didn't bring any Gentiles with him. But they made this assumption. They assumed he did this. This is amazing, isn't it? Here are people that Paul is so wanting to love. He's wanted to be a Jew to win the Jews. What are they going to do? <coughs> They're going to persecute him. They're going to beat him up. They're going to try to kill him. It says in verse 30, And all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. And now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison 
that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commanders and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, right where the temple is, there was this place called the Antonio Fortress. And that's where the, uh, basically the Romans kind of would have kept an eye on what would happen in the temple. And they would do that because the Jews had a reputation for getting kind of fired up, especially around holy days and causing a ruckus. Um, and so they, they had uh, hundreds of soldiers really just like literally had stairs down into the temple courts. They could just go right down into temple courts and deal with something. So when they see this ruckus and they see this guy Paul getting beat up, they're like, oh, what's going on? And they rush down there. And when they rush down there, uh, by the grace of God, these guys stopped beating Paul because it says they were wanting to kill him. And it says in verse 33, Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded that he be taken into the barracks. And when he had reached the stairs, he had to be carried. That is, Paul had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So they're just like trying to paw at him. You can just imagine the scene trying to give him to us. You know, we want to kill this guy. <coughs> Paul's probably punch drunk, not knowing what's going on. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Interesting, the exact same words they said with Jesus in the same place. Away with him. Now, what we see here is simply Paul being persecuted by religious people. The very people that he wanted to reach. I do think there's an application here for us immediately right now. And that is, forget about the, the, the politics of immigration. I have sympathy with people who are worried about what might happen with immigration. But think about this. If God has called us to reach Muslims, and we can't hardly get into Muslim-run countries, and God brings a bunch of Muslims here, do you think that might be? So we're supposed to reach them? And is it worth reaching those people, even if it means our death? Now, I'm not saying we should want to die, but we want to be like Paul that says, I'm willing to. Another thing is interesting, too, about persecution coming from religious people. Um, some of the people that have been most vocal uh, about, some, uh, about some of the things that, that I've done or said in this city have been other churches who think that we're a bit too conservative or Bible-thumpy. You know, we take the Bible a bit too serious. And it's funny that it's not our neighbors down the road or, you know, the, some cult that thinks that we're wacky. It's other professing believers that think we're a bit, hey, look out for those guys. You know, they do this and they don't do that. Interesting. I think this is important because I think that at the end of the day, we can't set our direction as individuals nor as a church based on what's, what's going to be the immediate result. Is it all going to turn out happy, clappy? It's got to be based on, we just want to obey Jesus. We want to pick up our cross. We want to deny ourselves. We want to follow him. It's got to be that. So, that's how far we're going to go. This scene continues on through chapter 21, chapter 22, into chapter 23. But you're going to have to wait until January to get into that. So, let's pray.